Good evening. Um, I'm Saul Estrin, and I'm uh, pleased to say I'll, I'm uh, uh, chairing this uh, public lecture by uh, Luis Garacano. Um, this lecture is, is um, the first in the uh, Department of Management series on business in a global age. Uh, it's also, I think, the first uh, uh, lecture to be given under the auspices of the new Department of Management. Uh, many of you will know, some of you, I think, are faculty or students, the Department of Management was formed uh, um, last year uh, uh, by bringing together uh, four previous departments and institutes that worked in the management area under one heading and uh, um, we will be moving next year into the new academic building. As we run up uh, towards that, we have um, started a number of new degrees this year and we're also starting a number of research and uh, 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 lecture activities of which this is perhaps uh, uh, the one with the uh, greatest outreach. This is the, therefore the first of this series. I might mention now that, um, uh, you know, things uh, to come, so to speak, there will be another one of these events on the 23rd of October. Uh, where John Monks will talk about Europe, migration and globalization. Um, today, however, uh, we're going to uh, start off with a uh, uh, lecture by Luis Garacano. Luis uh, did his PhD in Chicago and then has worked at Chicago uh, 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 as well as uh, the Sloan School and London Business School. Uh, and he last, uh, uh, well, very, very recently joined the Department of Management as a, a joint appointment uh, with the Economics Department. Uh, and I think we're very uh, happy and lucky to have uh, Luis uh, uh, joining us. Uh, Luis uh, undertakes uh, economic analysis of uh, the internal organizations of firms. And what he's going to do today, today is bring together, I think, uh, quite a bit of his recent thinking and then apply that to issues of relevance to strategy. And I think this will be, I hope this will be an a, a exciting uh, event for us all. Uh, I don't want to spend a long time on introduction. The plan of the, plan of the uh, evening will be uh, that Lewis will talk for 30, 40 minutes, that order of magnitude, and then we'll turn to question and answer. When we go to the Q&A part, uh, there will, I sort of think, be people walking around with microphones. This whole event is going to be, um, uh, is going to be recorded, and, so, um, and then you can download it onto your uh, iPods or whatever and hear, hear the highlights again and again. And, um, and, and so we do need to pick up every, uh, uh, everything that's said so that uh, this is for Louis and myself and for all the audience. Please make sure that before you say anything uh, that you have a microphone in front of you before you say it. So we're going to kick off now and, and go to the lecture. Uh, um, uh, we'll finish, I don't know, between quarter to eight and eight. And, and let me just say that at the end of that, I'll say a few words and then we will... You're all invited to a, a reception uh, in the uh, uh, senior common room ups on the fifth floor. Um, we perhaps can continue some of that conversation uh, and discussion uh, then. So with no more ado, let me hand over uh, to Luis Gautano. Thanks, Saul. Thanks very much. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be at LSE and um, see the intellectual ferment and the activity and the extent to which people are, are engaged with, with thinking um, rigorously and seriously about applying economic knowledge and developing new economic knowledge that is relevant to, to the real world, which is what I'll try to do today. Um, what I'll do is I will 
um, give you a sense of what I think has happened in the strategy, um, in the economic analysis of strategy. So um, the, the, the lecture is an economics view or economist's view of what economics can tell you about um, conceiving and implementing strategy. Um, in that sense, uh, I will start by giving you a sense of what happened before and giving you mostly examples. I'm going to try to make it as, uh, as applied as possible throughout. Then I'm going to tell you what happened in terms of the economics of organizations' contribution to strategy. And then I'm going to finish up um, with a, an application that I think is very much in the minds of everybody, which is the, the BP reorganization that was announced last Friday. Uh, as I was preparing the lecture over the weekend and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and today, this, this kind of news from BP became increasingly uh, salient, and I wanted to kind of give you some thoughts on issues that we can uh, potentially draw and that we can, and we can think about uh, in applying economic organizations to the BP structure. Um, a general broad theme of, of what I want to tell you is that um, as, as in the Army, like a great plan without a good implementation doesn't make, doesn't carry you anywhere. And in the context of film strategy, um, a great plan is about having the environment clear, understanding what the environment is about, and then that clearly is an economics issue. There's no question that analyzing the environment, analyzing competition, analyzing entry, analyzing all those things, it's an economics problem. Uh, what I want to argue is that economics can contribute very much to analyzing the implementation question, that it can actually give you lots of pointers on how to think about how do we structure, how do we organize a firm to operate in that environment. Okay, so that's the plan. Um, I want to start with the environment, as I told you. So, um, let me tell you kind of where the strategy in economics, where the relation comes from. Until 1970s, mostly the predominant view of how strategy should be taught in business schools and how a strategy should be applied was each, each strategy problem is different. We need to go problem by problem, and we just need to develop lots of intuition. By analyzing lots of examples, we'll develop a pretty good intuition about how things go. Okay. Um, the clear exemplifier of that approach was Harvard Business School where faculty were actively discouraged from actually giving any kind of lecture. In fact, even today, uh, lecturing is thrown upon at, at the HBS. Um, of course, today they, they are trying to draw principles uh, behind strategy cases, but a few years back, they would literally have the good way to teach a case is you go over the discussion, discussion finishes, Everybody draws different, lecture, different lessons from it. Lecturer leaves, end of the story. There is no lecture of any kind. There's not even like drawing conclusions about the case. Um, the first kind of in effort to apply what economists were learning about industries to strategy was the Boston Consulting Group's, um, Bruce Henderson's uh, use of the experience group. Bruce Henderson had the salesman view of how you get a name in an industry, and he was a good salesman at that. And the way you get a name in the industry is by having a tool, marketing it to death, and making sure that everybody's here about it, and then they're going to relate it to you and, and you're, you're in business. The tool was experience curve. Uh, these are two examples from the 70s. The experience curve is um, drop in, or learning curve, is a drop in 
the cost, what you have in one axis is accumulated unit production, and the other axis is cost. It's a drop in the cost of producing a particular good with the number of units that you've produced. Okay? It's not economies of scale, which are with the number of units per year you produce, but it's with the total number of units you've produced. Um, those two uh, experience curves show that um, with each doubling of output in one case, uh, cost decreased by 25%, in the other case by 30%, that's the 75 to 70% slope. What's the strategy conclusion of thinking that experience curves are important? Think about it. Who is going to go faster down the experience curve? The firm that has more units. So what do you want to do? Figure out which industries have big learning curves. What is the strategy prescription? Simple. Figure out which, which industries have bigger curves like that and get into those industries, get out of the ones that don't have those curves and make sure that you are with a big market share because that's the way that you will actually have low cost and that's where you will be able to compete. So how do you compete? Low prices, volume, low cost. That was the basic principle uh, which leads to this very well-known uh, strategy tool with commas, um, the BCG um, share um, allocation analysis, which basically says take out your money from the dogs and possibly from the cash cows and put it into stars. What is a star? It's a firm where growth is big. It's an industry where growth is big and where you have a big share. Growth is big, thus there will be learning curves. People are figuring out how to do stuff. And if you have a big share, you're going to be the one going down the learning curve. So the, the, the analytical approach that corresponds is go out there, calculate the learning curve, go to the CEO and tell him, hey, you know, in your portfolio, there are a couple of places where if you throw lots of money at it, you're going to have a very strong market position. Okay. Obviously, this is very simplified. If you want to understand industries here, it's not just how much they're growing, which matters. Some industries are growing and nobody's making any money. Some industries are not growing and people are doing very well, like tobacco, for example. Nor is only your market share up there, which matters. There are many other things that are important. As you can see in this uh, table, um, economic value added by industry, the usual industries that firms, uh, industries that you would imagine are pretty bad are at the bottom. Uh, electronics, steel, airlines, very low. I mean, basically destroying value over the 86, 97 period. Tobacco, computer software, personal care are creating value. Clearly, they are systematic. Okay, clearly. It's pretty suggestive of the idea that it matters in which industry you are, whether you're going to be making money or not, and that in some industries, systematically, people make money, computer software and services uh, being one. And the question is, this is not just growth and share. Okay, there is something beyond that that you can take forward and say, okay, how, do, how, how does money get made? Um, the, way that, um, the way that economists were analyzing this in the past pre-70s was called the structure conduct performance paradigm. And structure conduct performance paradigm basically says, look at the market structure of a particular industry. How, how easy it is to compete? How easy it is to enter? How much differentiation is there? Is it all prices or are there other, other dimensions on which you can compete? That's going to tell you something about the conduct of the firms and that's going to tell you something about their performance. Okay? Um, this existed, economists were using it for regulatory purposes, economists were trying to use this type of approach, understanding the structure of an industry, to, to, to advise a regulator, hey, be careful, this is an industry you want to be regulating, you want to be controlling, you want to be watching out that people are not abusing monopoly positions because this industry of monopoly positions will be created. So the next stage in our story is Michael Porter saying, hey, that's a cool pool tool. 
that's a cool tool that we can use to tell firms this is where you want to compete. The same industry that you want to tell the regulator, watch it, extraordinary profits are going to be made are, is exactly the same industry you want to tell a client, oh, look, this is an industry where potentially money will be made because there's a lot of rivalry or because, sorry, because there's no rivalry or because barriers to entry are very high, etc. This was basically, as many ideas, the genius in this idea was basically turning it around. It wasn't, there's nothing new. There's nobody in economics or industrial organization in the 80s who didn't know that bargaining power and rivalry and entry matter for determining profitability. The genius is putting these five forces, using lots of examples and showing to the world, hey, this is a way to think about it. Um, the next stage is basically kind of thinking of it. If you see, I mean, this is still the same stage, just thinking from industry to environment. This, this graph is kind of meaningless in terms of, of its graphical position. Brandenburg and Abel think that we should, we should do it a little bit more precisely by looking at uh, horizontally adding complementos, which are firms, which are other firms or other industries that raise the value in yours. Uh, thinking of actual and potential rivals broadly as rivalry, substitutes, entry, everything that, that damages your margins, and thinking of suppliers and buyers, the vertical chain. Bas basically the same story as, as they, as uh, Porter was, was putting it. So first stage, we can understand the environment in which we are operating, and we can understand by using economics, industry economics in particular, to understand issues like differentiation, excess capacity, how is it going to matter for pricing, uh, barriers to entry, the extent to which costs are sunk, a lot of things that are going to tell you how is it to enter, how is it to compete, etc. Now, once you have that, what do you do with it? Well, what you can do with it is you can think of what does it take to succeed, the key success factors in this industry, given that my industry analysis tells me suppliers are very strong, well, the key success factor is going to have a strategy that actually deals with supplier power. Okay, so once you understand that, you go and formulate your strategy, which is where do you want to compete and how do you want to compete? Example, just one, uh, Nintendo Wii. Okay? Nintendo is this Shigeru Miyamoto, the designer of the Super Mario and the, uh, a huge amount of the, of the games of Nintendo and who actually came up with a strategy for the Wii. He's the running the, the game division. What is impressive of that strategy is that it was actually not kind of somebody thinking and evolving, etc. It was actually a very conscious strategy that says we understand the economics of the game industry, Microsoft and uh, Sony are in a winner-take-all market for this battle for this market because it's a market with huge economies of scale and huge network effects where the one who gets bigger will get bigger because the bigger you are, the more consumers, the more people will do games for your platform, the more games for your platform, the more consumers. We don't want to go in that war because Microsoft and, and Sony are going to kill us. We cannot compete on power of console. We cannot compete on all of these issues. Uh, neither power, no graphics, etc. What are we going to do? We're going to play a completely different game. Which game? What is our positioning that follows from our understanding of the industry? Our positioning, the position that follows from our understanding of the industry is we're going to be serving mums. The mums who are, we're not going to be serving the hardcore designers, we're con going to be serving mums who will think this is a cool toy for my kids. Okay. That's the new position they came up with. From there it followed, we're not going to compete on graphs, etc. We're going to compete on uh, other things that make it more attractive to mothers. And once you have that, you have all your designs up and running, thinking how is a mother a consumer for, for a toy, for, for a video game. Uh, not indeed power or graphs, but moving and educating, etc., etc. Another example of moving from understanding your environment to um, 
to designing a strategy. One of my favorite ones is the car rental industry, where you do your industry analysis and you say, actually, potential rivals, well, very nasty industry with lots of, you do analysis, let's say, in the 90s, because a lot has changed, which is relevant to this story. You do analysis, you say they're competing very hard. They're all selling an homogeneous product, an homogeneous commodity in the airport. Seven players all selling the same product, counter, next counter, next counter. Very fierce price competition. So um, the suppliers are the airports which have a huge monopoly power because you actually have to go through them. How do you go about creating a strategy competing in this space? Well, enterprise rental car says we're going to compete by selling in the United States, selling replacement cars, the second car for the family, and being a local rental car company. We're going to be convenient. We're going to be friendly. We're going to partner the garages. That was the idea of the strategy. And kind of takes me to the main point of my talk with a little detour. The main talk of my talk being very pretty. This is the strategy that I want. Big question, how? I want to create, just have it in mind, okay? I want you to start thinking about it. I, I want to give you the answer in 10, 15 minutes, a little bit more. Actually, I was told 45 rather than 30, 40, so I'm, I'm aiming for 45. Um, how do you do this? Just think of it yourself. You're the entrepreneur. This is your idea. I don't want you to discuss the idea. The idea is good, let's assume, okay? You want to be a player in a market that didn't exist at the time, which is the replacement market. People need a car because the car broke down. And you want to implement this strategy. You, are, you want to be convenient and friendly, and you want to partner the garages. How are you going to do this from an organizational perspective? That's my question. Okay? How are you going to implement this strategy? Implementing this strategy means actually going from an idea to some system that is going to actually serve the consumers in the way that you intend. Um, I did say I have a detour, and my detour is, of course, that... Economists had moved beyond the structure conduct performance by the time Porter came with his five forces, and the way they had moved is by realizing that the conduct of firms affects the structure of the industry. It's not just, oh, this is the industry, I have to act within this industry, but the way I move is going to change the industry. Okay. What is the strategy? Uh, how does the strategy affect it? Um, I could tell you a little bit about game theory. I have a couple of examples based on the prisoner's dilemma, but I'm not going to tell you. Just very briefly, for example, the extent to which endogenous and cause matter, John Sutton, LSE professor, has published two books, extremely influential on this, probably the most influential, he's not in the room, so I can say, the most influential industrial organization economist in the world, um, talking about the extent to which if costs, if some costs are endogenous or exogenous, the industry structure is different. Why? Well, imagine endogenous and cause meaning some costs that depend on your own choice. You are Pepsi, you're competing with Coke. What's the key sunk cost here? Advertising. Okay. Advertising is clearly sunk. If you go with your brand Smith Cola and you don't succeed, you cannot recover your costs. How does the, the fact that these costs are endogenous, that I choose my advertising level matters? Well, I compete. I am Coke. I throw more money in advertising. Pepsi replies by throwing more money in advertising. We both compete by throwing more and more money, which means the level of sunk cost in that industry that is required to compete is very high, which means endogenously we've created a barrier to entry because other firms will have huge advertising expenditure per, per Coke, per actual can, if they want to compete with us when we have such a huge market share. So endogenous and cost matter on price competition, again, is not just some structural thing, but a lot of things about my conduct and the way I can change the industry is going to matter for price competition. Okay? So that's my kind of, um, setting. Kind of, this is where strategy has been going on 80s and 90s. In the 90s, these insights have made their way to the teaching of strategy at most business schools when it comes to parent. People actually are now 
saying, if you want to understand the way films compete and the way industries are structured, you actually have to understand the interactions. You want to use game theory, talk about deterrence, talk about rivalry, things like that. Okay. Now, I want to now talk about how do you implement this strategy. So I had this assignment that I want to recall to, to make you remember. We wanted to design a firm that can implement that rental strategy. Service-oriented, flexible, convenient, good within the replacement segment, and able to deal with the referral flow from garages. Okay, we want to get consumers to go to the garage, see, get their car broken, and be offered a car. Ideally, that would be our best hope. Okay, so organizational design is actually strategy implementation. It's not just that I need to have a good idea. I actually need to change the way the organization is structured to execute my idea. If you think about um, an example that I, I, will, I like very much into which I will come back to interrupt a little bit the flow here. Um, the FBI, after the first World Trade Center attack, post-1993, had a very clear view of how its strategy had to change. Okay? The FBI saw after the first World Trade Center attack, 1993, that there was no way um, they were going to detect counterterrorism attacks with the structure they had. The structure they had was decentralized with high-powered incentives. Okay? Basically, the previous structure, pre-terrorism of the FBI, was designed to fight crime. Most crimes, in spite of what you have seen about drug busts in Cali, and about um, a racketeering act, most crimes the FBI dealt were individual local crimes. Um, local crime, knowledge about local crimes is very decentralized. The only guy who knows what's going on is the guy who's talking to his informants. You want to incentivize that guy to make the arrests. You want to incentivize that guy to actually stay at 4 o'clock in the morning up instead of going home to his kids, risking his life, risking getting shot to make the arrest instead of saying at six, okay, I've done my job for the day, I go home. How do you do that? Well, you give him very broad power and if you want to give him broad power and actually he do, him do his job, you give him high-powered incentives. What does that mean? What that means is local officers within the FBI were owners of the case they were working on. That was the office of origin idea where you are, it's your case. You make the arrest, and you make the conviction, you'll be promoted. The more arrest, the more conviction, we can measure that. Okay? Now, great system, but now try to say, we're going to put a counterterrorism strategy on top of this. The essence of a counterterrorism strategy is you want people to communicate to each other. You want guy A who's hired in one of his, from one of his confidence that people are buying guns, and guy B who's heard that people are making some training exercises with flight simulators, you want those two guys to talk to each other and to actually come up with ideas that can bring the investigation forward. But of course, that's not the way it works. I have a file on paper mostly, but that's beyond my story. I have a file with all my information. That's by my desk. That's the file that I figure out. I know those confidence. I have all this information. I will make the arrests. Okay. So, in fact... When 9-11 took place, eight years after the FBI was trying to reorganize and reorganize, it was the case that, if you remember, there were two or three key pieces of information they didn't put together. They had arrested Musawi in Minneapolis. They had figured out that people were learning in Phoenix to 
fly 747s but we're not learning to land them or, or put them in the air. And those two things were kind of circulating through there, but nobody was really kind of putting them together because there was no communication across. So the information was there, but the organizational design wasn't. They had actually put some structures on top of the usual old, highly decentralized uh, decision rights, high-powered incentive structure. They've put some coordinating mechanism, which was a counter-terrorism center where people are supposed to exchange information. Well, you have to change my incentives. You have to change the way I work if you're going to make me share information. That hadn't worked. Okay? So what I want to tell you is organization is strategy implementation. You cannot come up with a great idea if you're not going to actually think of the organization that is going to implement it. Um, that's a change of format that happened when I put it here. I apologize. So that's one, two, three, four, and five. I know how to count. Uh, so what's the organization structure? Now think of your enterprise car rental assignment, okay? I want you to come up with the people they're going to hire for your enterprise car rental. The division of labor, who's going to do what? The hierarchy. The managerial decision rights and incentives, are the decisions going to make at head office or below? The unit structure, how we're going to group it, integrating mechanisms, how one office and the other office are going to be on speaking terms. Culture. Those are the main things that I want to deal with in discussing organizational structure and that I will deal with when we talk about enterprise in a, in a few minutes. So, okay, I want to just jump a couple of things I will, I will tell them. I'm not going to tell you about people um, here because it just goes a little bit beyond the scope. I'm already covering a huge amount of terrain. Division of labor is probably the first topic that economists were interested in. As you know, Adam Smith's um, um, Deus Ex Machina, the thing that moves the wealth of nations, is the division of labor. He finds the division of labor the most important uh, force in, in economic affairs um, and the most important cause for growth. I'm not going to talk about that, but basically how much you partition things is going to depend on how easy it is to coordinate them and how much, how big is the extent of the market. Big market, you can divide things very finely. I want to talk about hierarchy, managerial decision rights, unit structure, and integrated mechanisms. So I'll, I'll talk about these issues, talk about culture briefly, go over enterprise, and then go back to our BP. I promise you to talk some about BP's uh, current predicament. Um, So hierarchy and strategy. So the idea is how are you going to go from a, remember what we said, we have a strategy, which is where do we want to compete? For example, in we want to be consultants, we want to be providing expert services for very, very specialized problems. How we're going to be hiring very bright people. Okay, that's a competitive advantage. We're going to have the best talent in the business. Okay, from there to how we're going to organize them. And the first thing I want to talk about is hierarchy. So I, hierarchy is... How many people are we going to put in each level? Okay. How many people below? How many people above? How many levels are we going to have? And how is the hierarchy going to be structured? For all the talk about flattening, most organizations everywhere in the world are structured as hierarchies. We decrease layers, we increase layers, we go central, we go to central. Hierarchy is still the way most things, are, most, most, most things that you can think about are organized. Part of the reason I want to argue has to do with the way Knowledge is best utilized, okay? And what I'm giving you here is a graph, conceptual, completely conceptual. Uh, there is no, no numbers behind, in which I want, to, want, to think, want you to think about problems that are coming up in the organization 
And I want to think about how commonly they come up. They're routine problems that come up all the time. They're exceptional problems that are in detail. And in deciding the hierarchy, we're going to put two things together. We're going to decide how much we train people below and how many of them we hire. The key principle is going to be I can increase communication by having them rely more on their bosses by decreasing the extent to which they are trained. So I can save by having dumber people, if you will, but then they're going to be asking for help more often. So the span of control in the hierarchy is going to trade up how much the lower level can do. I can move here. Against, if I make them do more, they're going to know more things themselves. They're going to ask less often, and I'm going to have a bigger span. The principle in a hierarchy that is based on solving problems is the utilization of knowledge. The more, the, the, the key issue is if I don't have a hierarchy, everybody has to learn how to do everything. By having a hierarchy, I can save myself the cost of having lots of people who know how to do tricky things. I have lots of people doing the easy stuff, and I pass it on, and I get the, the harder things being solved by more expensive, highly trained labor. Of course, once you think of these principles, it's very easy to think, how does the strategy change my hierarchy? For example, if I go to more complex problems, meaning the tail is thicker, so I go from here to here, that's a thicker tail, then I need more things are going to get passed on. Workers, even when I turn them more, are going to be asking for help more often, and that means that my span of control is going to be lower. If you think of consultants, the more a consulting firm, just to give you an example, the more a consulting firm is dealing with very standardized problems, the higher the associate to partner ratios. Okay? If you compare Accenture with McKinsey, you'll see like in Accenture, they're doing the same problem again and again and again. They have a very clear methodology. Then everything can be delegated down. Consultants do a lot and partners can have high leverage. McKinsey, then you have very complicated problems. The tail comes up very often and that means we need more highly skilled people and more, much more intervention by partners. So the type of technology, how is it to communicate or how, how hard it is to communicate, the learning cost, how easy it is for people down the hierarchy to access knowledge, and the skills of your workers are going to determine how many people do you put below, how many people do you put above. And that's going to be given by your strategy. I can choose a more simple, a simpler product strategy that's going to change the number of layers that I need, the, the skills of the people, and the spans of control in my hierarchy, and vice versa. Okay, so by thinking of a hierarchy as dealing with solving problems as opposed to monitoring or making sure people do their jobs, you can actually come up immediately with a whole set of implications. Um, I think, personally, I mean, this is, of course, for empirical uh, work to verify it. I think out of equilibrium, managers have to ensure workers work. In equilibrium, most people in most jobs do their job. Very little of the actual time of a manager is, make, is, is employed making sure that people are actually in their desks. Um, and I think more, a lot of the work has to do with processing information and knowledge and making sure the knowledge is actually used efficiently. Third, so I said I was going to talk about division of labor briefly, just Adam Smith, I mentioned hierarchy, problem solving, and how getting into more complex things means you're going to change spans and layers accordingly. I want to talk about decision rights and incentives. My example in the FBI already tells you something about complementarity between decision rights and incentives. What are the key things economists have kind of suggested that are important over the last 15 years as organization economics has developed. One clear one is the complementarity between decision rights and incentives. The more 
incentives are decentralized. The more decision rights are decentralized, the more I use the knowledge of people at the local level to make decisions, the less I know what they're doing, those I have to align them by giving them high-powered incentives. Those high-powered incentives and decentralization rights tend to move together, subject to something I'm going to say in a second. So first thing, try to make sure that the incentives you design and the decision rights you, you, you're, you're using work together. Now, what's the big minus? The big plus of decentralization is going to be local knowledge gets used better. What's the big minus of decentralizing decision rights and giving high-powered incentives? It's a substitution among efforts and tasks, what Holmson and Megan have called multitasking, and what sociologists before have been talking about as the you-get-what-you-pay-for problem. And the problem is this. By raising incentives, you make people do more of what you're measuring. Of course, if what you're measuring is not really, really what you want, you are in trouble. Okay. If I tell doctors I'm going to measure how well they do the surgeries and doing, getting a lot of survival rates in the surgeries is what I can measure, I'm going to be giving them incentives to not take care of sick patients. They're going to operate on people who are the healthier people. The better doctors will choose the healthier people. They will not want to see the real sick patients I want them to match with. And in fact, in New York, there's good empirical analysis. Once they get to report cards, they got a lot of you get what you pay for. FBI counterterrorism, yes, I want you to communicate, but I'm giving you high-powered incentives to actually do these other things, to actually make sure you are holding the information and making the arrest. Of course, what is the you get what you pay for problem here? You're not going to be sharing and doing all the effort that it requires to build a case together because you want to actually get your career and your promotion. Okay. So measurability is tricky when people can choose how they allocate their effort. Notice, by raising incentives, I can make things worse. You think, oh, if there's a task A and B, on B I'm not working, I cannot measure it, but on A I can. By increasing incentives, the guy will do more on A. What's there to be lost? Well, what is there to be lost is that by, to increase my work on A, I'm going to have to give up on B, okay? My kid is going to a very good private school, and you guys probably have the same experience. They have to do an exam at the end of the year seven to see if they can go to another school or not. The exam is pretty clearly focusing on measurable things, by definition. So the teachers have to give up, even if that wouldn't be their, 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 their inclination, on teaching a lot, on doing lots of things in class that would be enriching and useful that don't improve the exam. Thus, all of these reform in public services, I mean, I would, I would postulate relying on market incentives for things that are hard to measure, claims to be based on economics, I'm not sure it is. I mean, people respond to incentives. There's no question about it. It's not like people don't respond. They respond very well to incentives. The way they respond to incentives is by doing what, you, what you're asking them to do, by paying them for it. Okay. The broad, broad trade-off that you incur when you're having people substitute among tasks is one very long, very much along the lines of the FBI. It's initiative versus coordination. You can choose between decentralizing, giving people high-powered incentives, making the divisional incentives very high-powered. Then you're going to get people who behave like shopkeepers. Okay? It's decentralized. You give me the incentive. You tell my division to do the best. We'll do it. Okay? But don't ask our division to work together in capturing synergies with another division because it's going to cost us money from our business unit and it's going to get them money. I have high-powered incentives. I won't do it. Vice versa. You can choose for coordination by making sure that Incentives are low-powered, that business units work together. The consequence is going to be that if I am measured on what the whole firm is doing, I don't have a very high incentive to really worry about 
my own working hard and being motivated like a shopkeeper because at the end of the day it's what we all do together, what counts. Fourth unit stru structure, fourth thing that I will have to choose when I choose an organizational structure and strategy. Most of these topics, if you are interested, I mean, there's work I've done. Some of them I, here I, I mentioned. I mentioned some about the same. Um, the unit structure and strategy relation. Here, what you're trying to do is trying to group activities into units and subunits into bigger units to internalize externalities. Okay, and there are two basic principles. The more you put things on the client-facing units, the more you're going to get adaptation. The more people are going to be as acting according to client wishes. The more you centralize activities at corporate, the more you're going to have synergies, cost savings. People are going to be working together but not knowing so much about the market. What you would want is to try to do a little bit of, of everything. And most firms do that. I mean, contrary to what you, most people, I think, think that things are either business unit or functional or matrix, most organizations are hybrid. Most organizations have lots of functions at the client level, sales, marketing maybe, or um, production plants in client countries. Some functions are centralized, HRM or IT. And then you have this situation where you need a lot of communication because you cannot measure the business unit output very well. The business unit can always tell you, look, the reason I didn't sell any chocolate this year is because these guys in central corporate are giving me the wrong chocolate for my country. You should let me do my own chocolate, which, of course, would kill all the synergy. Functional, similarly, is going to say, hey, I'm doing very well. The problem is these guys in the business units don't sell what they have to sell. So by doing this kind of hybrid structure that tries to do a bit of client, a little bit of operational, what organizations are going to get is communication problems where the units are going to try to be pushing uh, their agendas and uh, not communicating truthfully. I won't say, oh, I don't mind what kind of chocolate you give me because it's better for the company. I will actually try to push my view because I'm a business unit and as a business unit, that's how I, I operate. I've mentioned very briefly these integrated mechanisms. So not one principle is used. I've talked about division of labor, five things that, I, that we want to choose, division of labor, hierarchy, um, grouping units and subunits, integrating mechanisms, and incentives and decision rights. Integrating mechanisms are about trying to make sure that I have all well one if I'm BP, all well two if I'm BP. I give them the centralization rights. I give them their own incentives, but then I want them to talk together. How do I do that? Maybe I put a functional manager above both of them for production. That's a hybrid first. Second, maybe I use a specialized coordinator who's a guy who tries to knock heads by creating a team and this guy goes around, um, create a team or maybe send people on site. A beautiful thing in this Airbus story today in the Wall Street Journal, I'd recommend you to read it, was how much of the changes in coordination were done by actually changing locations. When German managers and French managers don't coordinate, okay, we just get 88 German managers and send them to Toulouse. They're not talking well to the production guys in the, in the floor, we just put the 80 managers and the, and the engineers and they start to work inside the Airbus 380. Okay? The offices are gone. They have to work inside the plane. Okay? So you have lots of ways to kind of try to get that coordination between the two, the business and the function. I could talk about this forever, but obviously I don't have the time. I just want to give you a hint of all the things that our economics kind of has. has kind of, these are all issues about incentives. They're all issues about division of labor, transferring knowledge, communicating, etc. The last thing 
on which a priori you would think, oh, what is economics going to tell us here is culture. The last bit that you, you do your formal structure, that you can write in a piece of paper. These are the incentives. This is the structure. This is the decision rights. This is my organizational tree. Then you have the culture. What do we mean by culture? I think there are two ways to view culture. As a stock of share specific human capital and as an incentive device. I want to tell you the two, the two views. Share specific human capital, meaning a culture is stuff that we know, our human capital, that we all know because we're in the same firm or in the same school here, and that is specific to the school. And the use of this is going to be that it's going to make our communication very cheap because we all know what we mean as economists when I say Nash equilibrium. I don't have to spend hours explaining what it means that one guy deviates, etc. And as a result, I can be very efficient in communicating. Okay. That's one view of culture. You use your culture to complement all the other details, informal, all these informal mechanisms to complement all the other details. So it could be a language, for example. We all talk Nash equilibrium. It could be some rules of behavior. We all know we interrupt talks or we don't interrupt talks, depending on the place. It could be some knowledge of facts. We know where the bathroom is and we know where the photocopier is and we know where the secretary who actually can get things done is. Okay. A second view of culture, more incentive-based, is the world changes. Contracts are incomplete. Culture tells you what's acceptable and what's unacceptable for things that are not in the contract. Culture, this is a view of David Krebs, by the way. Culture is when... The world changed, and my supplier calls me and says, I would pay 10, but I'm going to pay 8, even though I promised to pay 10. Is this breach of contract or not? Are we in a situation where I understand we, are, we have contracts, but we can change them, uh, the, the circumstances? We, we have a lot of ways to think about what is it that is acceptable or unacceptable. And it's very related to incentives. Okay? I can use culture to avoid you get what you pay for. I'm giving high power incentives. I want some things I want to discourage. I can use culture to complement because incentives are not working well. Uh, direct incentives are not going to work. I'm going to base my company on culture. And I did a lot of research on law firms. One thing you find is, in, 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 surprisingly, I think, the very top law firms in the world, the very best six law firms in the world, don't use any explicit incentives for their partners. They're all based on, on culture, you could say, tenure. Okay? They have lockstep compensation. Partners all get promoted. The guys who get promoted get paid more by the year. They don't get paid more if they bring in Ford in the company. They don't get paid more and they do most hours. They don't get paid more. Why? Well, we have this strong culture in those firms where we know a lot of the work is team production. We're not going to try to use these high-power incentives which will kill all this coordination, as I said before. Instead, what we'll do is we will substitute that by a system in which we all know what to work and we all know what is expected of you. We don't have to write it down, and we do it. Okay. Um, I could explain relational contracts, etc., how to enforce that culture, but we leave that for, for another occasion. Um, I want to just say one thing before going to the BP application. And the one thing I want to say is all of these things are related. There are complementarities among all of these tools. By choosing one tool... By choosing to decentralize, then I have to change my incentives. But then I have to change how I group business units and, and functions because I want to get conflicts in communication. I have to change the division of labor. I have to change lots of things. That has two implications which are very important. And what I want to put on the table. First, they're partial optimal. There are lots of non-convexities in organizations. I cannot just say, oh, by if it's better to fly the planes more often if I'm Southwest Airlines. I am American Airlines. I'm going to try to put my planes longer in the air by not giving meals. 
Well, that's a great idea for Southwest. It's not a great idea for American, obviously. But this happens for all organizations, for organizational variables. By moving in one dimension, you can just get worse. You have to move everything at the same time in some sense. Okay? And that's a system change idea that partial adjustment is going to do things well. In that sense, organizations, uh, complementarities tell you a lot about why leadership is needed. Because the things are going to get worse before they get better. That's non-convexities. Uh, we're in a local peak. We have to climb to another local peak. And because we need to make lots of changes at the same time, we need this idea of conviction and vision. It kind of makes sense in that context. How does enterprise get organized? They hired... Okay, no division of labor. We're going to have very small local garages. So no division of labor. We need someone who can do all the tasks. All right? The, big, the most difficult task is going to tell us which kind of talent I need to use. What's the most difficult to task? Doing the paperwork, handling the clients, etc. So I need college guys. College guys washing cars. That's tricky. No division of labor. Tiny local shops close to the garages. College guys. How are you going to hire the college guys? Well, very high powered incentives related to output. Internal promotions, I tell the college guy, as you go along, if you work hard, you're going to get promoted. Very much compensation based on how they do it in their zone. A lot of rivalry between offices. I can measure you, I can measure how the office is doing, I can relate the two measures and see who's doing best and reward you on that. What's the culture? So I've gone through decision rights, incentives, division of labor. Um, what's the culture? The culture is like the Marines. We have good boot camp. Everybody gets here. Everybody washes cars. The ones who are better, the ones who survive, are going to make it all the way to the top. We're going to have very strong entrepreneurial competitive culture. BP. Some thoughts. It's kind of striking when you think of um, how companies change when a new manager comes in. How different is managing a company from managing a country or managing a central bank? You imagine if when monetary, for example, to put a central bank example, when a new governor comes to the ECB or the World Bank or, sorry, the ECB or the um, Fed or the Bank of England, if he said, oh, all the approach in the past is wrong. We're going to change everything. And monetary policy will be now, it was 5% interest rate. Now it's going to be 15%. I mean, we know there are long leads and lags. We know it's very complicated. We know if we drive like this with leads and lags, we're going to go off the road before we are able to correct. Okay? Well, companies also have lots of leads and lags. It takes a long time to know whether we are doing anything well. Why does any t every time a new CEO come in say, everything is wrong, we're going to change we were centralized, we're going to decentralize, we're decentralized, too much centralization, we're going to centralize, we'll fire 5,000 people, we'll reassign 15,000 jobs, we'll suppress 15 layers of management. By the time all of these effects, the things happen and take effect, we're five, six years down the road, conditions might have changed 15 times in between. Does this make sense? So let me tell you about BP briefly. BP has the organizational structure that is considered by management people and by economists the example of the perfect modern organizational structure. When Lord Brown came in, 1995, he said, the old business, I'm now paraphrasing, I'm, I'm putting it in my frame, scope, competitive advantage, what's our strategy? We want local adaptation. Each business is different, each location is different. In one place, the regulation is Russian, in another place, the oil well is in Mexico, in another place, the downstream retail is very complicated because the market is very concentrated. All of these things say synergies are going to be tricky, less decentralized like crazy. Let's go to a very, very localized structure. Measure very well. I can measure your efficiency downstream. I can measure exploration, production, how many oil wells, how efficient they are, blah, blah, blah. Put the manager in charge, give him a lot of power, boom, you're up and running. 
That was the structure. It's pretty reasonable if you think that interdependencies are not very big. If you think that I can measure pretty well, which was one of my concerns before, measurability, you get what you pay for. Seems right. Now, I want some knowledge transfer. I don't want to reinvent the wheel every time. I don't want the Indonesian guys to have to reinvent what was invented in the Gulf of Mexico. How do I do that? Well, Lord Brown came up with this idea, which is T-shaped workers slash peer assist, which says we all are in our business unit, but we assist each other, and we give credit to that. If you really want to be promoted, you'd better be known as somebody who, when the phone goes on and they give you a call, you pick up the phone, you answer the call, and you tell the Indonesian guy, this is how you use these oil wells, this is how you actually perforate them without losing efficiency, whatever the problem was. Now, they are rewarding you with promotions for being helpful. Of course, the problem is you might get too helpful, but bear with me. What is left over? Stuff that is not about being helpful and is not very measurable. Process efficiency is very much like counterterrorism. Process efficiency, how well an oil well is doing, do we have explosions? Most oil wells don't explode. Most refineries don't explode. You can cut down a lot on maintenance of refineries for a long time without actually having an explosion. If you're lucky, three years down the road, you are in Russia when you were in Texas. End of the story. 2005, Texas City, boom. Okay? Refinery explodes, the bigger, uh, biggest industrial accident in the U.S. in two decades. Okay? People dead, lots of injured, huge, I mean, BP. We're not talking about some little local uh, company. Baker Commission goes in. You appoint Baker in the United States whenever anything happens to investigate. Baker Commission goes in, and they come up with a beautiful, enormous report. I recommend you. Some of the chapters are good. You have to go through it. But it's actually pretty insightful. And it says, hey, big surprise. You get what you paid for. A lot of the dysfunctions you have come from the same thing that was making BP a great company. You wanted, B you wanted the managers to take responsibility for profits. Process safety is not really showing up in their profits. It's going to show up in five or six years. Now it's a cost. You know, it's like counterterrorism. Yeah, it's great. Everybody tells me in the company to look up process safety, but, you know, nobody's really, nobody's really paying me on that and nobody's really watching. I'm not going to do it. Okay. So there were problems. Okay. The question, of course, is do you want to react by the, to the fact that the Alaska pipeline disaster was there in 2006? Do you want to react to the um, Texas City explosion and other process incidents they had? By the way, the measurability thing is very easy to see when compared to safety of personnel. Per se personnel safety actually was very high at BP. That is easy to measure, and people were not putting it under the carpet. If you get injured, you have to go in. And so it was really the thing that was hard to measure, these long-term investments with very long-term consequences that was suffering. Now, the question is, does this explain BP's recent overall performance and last two years? And can you solve it without saying, oh, synergy, 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 forget about adaptation, forget about local knowledge. We're going to get all the power back in the head office, and everything that was done before was terrible. Of course, I mean, I'm exaggerating a lot of what uh, uh, Mr. Howard, the new chairman, is saying, the new CEO, has obviously to do with let's make the world a little bit worse so that when the, when the future comes, we can say all of this gain is ours, okay? I mean, we are here, we make it, we put all the charges at the start, we say how bad things are. Even if we just increase by a little bit, we already kind of have a big gain. But anyway, I think there is substance to what he's saying. He wants to change things. Do we want to change everything? Let me tell you one pro and one con and drop it there and people can. Pro, of course, is there are complementarities. We want something different. We have to change everything. 
Okay? You want to change towards acquiring more synergies, caring more about process safety, etc. You cannot just touch incentives. That's what I've been talking. So, hey, Mr. Organization Economist, you tell me to change in complement. I'm just going all the way. Of course, the con is um, with all this process delay and with the diversity of the of the BP operations, it seems like a decentralized it seems like the centralized structure makes by far more sense. Every company is different. Every oil well is different. We want to share knowledge. But we want to avoid that um, lack of coordination. Can we do it? Okay. Well, you could say, hey, it's hard to measure. We have all these mistakes that are easy to say. What are we going to do with process safety without changing the whole structure? I would say an organizational economics, economist looking at this would say, A, segregate the hard to measure tasks into a separate job of hierarchy. You have a compliance officer in a hedge fund. You don't let the hedge fund manager see if his position is actually in compliance with the risk of Goldman Sachs. You have another guy. Get it out. Now, the process safety office reports to the business unit manager. Well, get him to report to a process safety head at London, in London and make sure that he has the right incentives to look inside the company and not obey the business unit manager himself. You can segregate that task. You can use lower power incentives for these things that are hard to measure. So you make the process safety guy completely immune to whether profits go down or up. You tell him, look, your job is to find problems. If there are problems, you tell me. And don't worry, you're not going to, your is not going to suffer. You rely on more direct control because you're not using incentives. You just make sure the process safety guy is doing his job by doing, making him do all this paperwork that everybody hates, but that verifies that he's actually checked everything is safe, etc., etc. So you could do a lot better, I think, by thinking of the multitasking problem, yes, high-power incentives are incompatible with some of the tasks. Well, segregate those tasks that are too high, hard to measure and use the low-power incentives for those and then continue with your very successful decentralized structure. Just proof, quote, 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 please don't say I said proof. Um, if you look at the performance of BP, which is in blue, um, and uh, Exxon, and Chevron in this graph, just look at Exxon, which is the one they are comparing themselves to. Of course, everything depends on your, in these graphs where I start at 100, you all guys know you can make them look very different depending on where you start. I am looking at arbitrary start, which is Brown's accession to BP's presidency. That's when he started, 1995, just before 96 date that appears there. You see that by 2006, BP, Blue, and Exxon Red are almost indistinguishable. Okay, and that it's really the pipeline and the Texas City, and I mean, everybody starts to think what's going on in here. Is this company well managed or not, etc.? I would postulate, without obviously knowing from the inside, that the organization is probably working better than it seems, and that you can do a lot of changes by by realizing that the strategy VP has chosen is one that requires a lot of local adaptation, that has relatively limited scope for synergies, that a decentralized structure with high power incentives makes more sense, and that you can deal with the problems high power incentives create by segregating those tasks. And that's um, all I have to say, and I'm happy to take questions. So if people would like to uh, ask questions, there's people, I think, uh, with microphones will come. Um, yes, Wait, 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 till the mic. Thank you for a wonderful... Oh, sorry. Thank you for a wonderful uh, and deep lecture. It's it, it probably a little bit complicated because you have a, a such complicated message in some ways to uh, tell us in a short space of time. 
just to sum things up, because he was such an uh, important figure at the Lund School of Economics at the University of Chicago, could you summarize what your differences would be with uh, Ronald Coase, what, what, if you see what I mean? Sure. How is your position different from the Coasean position? I think Ronald Coase... Um, I think Ronald Coase is the starter of organizational economics. He didn't talk anything about decision rights or incentives or hierarchy or his main contribution, his contribution, remember, he's Nobel Prize for two articles. Um, it's always quality and quantity, and in our world, there's no quality, quantity, substitution. One smart guy counts for more than a thousand not, not smart ones because ideas matter. And his big ideas were the problem of social cost, which is about externalities, and transaction cost, which is should I, ha should I have things inside the firm or outside the firm? That's the key problem he addresses. And what he says is essentially by doing things outside the firm, you're gaining the advantages of using the market price mechanisms to, to allocate things. You are avoiding the use of authority, which is kind of tricky in some instances. On the other hand, by doing things inside the firm, maybe you're more responsive. You avoid all the types of market coordination issues you, you gain on information, maybe by using the information inside the firm. So those are the transaction costs he saw. Um, he put them on the table and he said, let's move on from there. There's been a lot of work on transaction costs. I'm not a contributor to that. I haven't uh, done work on other transaction costs in the market or in the firm bigger. I've worked on the boundaries of the firm in my work on the referrals, how the law firm's boundaries get set, but it was not a transaction cost story. It was a story about how by sharing rents among lawyers, law firms facilitate the matching of problems with people. I want to keep the client that came in that is not really mine. In the market, it's hard to get me passing on to somebody else, even though I'm not really good at dealing with him. Law firms allow me to, by taxing the, me on the clients I keep and giving me some money on the clients I pass, I have bigger incentives to pass clients to some other people. That's my only work on the boundaries of the firm. Um, so my work has been on hierarchies, on incentives, on communication organizations, on information technology, on the knowledge economy. Kind of, we are, I mean, he is clearly the first organizational economist, but I, th I think we are, we are, we're doing kind of different and hopefully some progress is being taking place. Who knows? Thank you. And thanks for the kind words, by the way. When you look at these different firms, these oil companies, for example, I'm sure that if you went inside those firms, you'd find they each have a somewhat different approach to process safety. And if you went inside the different law firms, and they're all three basically successful oil firms, and if you went inside the, the leading law firms, well, you know, you're certainly going to find a, 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 an array of different approaches to compensation. And I'm just wondering what any comments you might have on what, how that approaches, what that implies for the role that an economist, what an economist can do when looking at strategy. Because you take a given firm and you look at the strategy and it's successful and you can kind of tell a story why that is successful ex post. But on a prescriptive basis, when you against the backdrop of same industry, same fundamental problems, cross-sectional variation in successful models, what do you do with that exactly? Okay, so there's a, that's a great question. So I would say, so I, let me answer two things. One is the multiple big thing that I said. You can do things in many broad ways and be successful. You can be Southwest Airlines, aim to conquer the point-to-point -point market or Ryanair, go to the bad, quote, bad airports, 
not allow people to put suitcases, not give meals. All of these things are consistent. That's a good idea. You can be British Airways or American Airlines. You can do allow people to transfer suitcases, give them assigned seating, uh, keep the planes less long in the air. And all those things are also successful. I think first answer has to be it's going to depend on the environment. Am I facing an environment like enterprise where I want to be local, I want to be in the garages, in which case I cannot have division of labor. If I'm hurt, I'm in the airport, I'm going to have a humongous amount of, of cars to go through. I will have several hundred employees that will do, few will do washing cars, a few will do, everything is perfectly divided, as Adam Smith would say, division of labor increase with extent of the market. So first point, your market position is going to be the key thing that will tell you if you want to have this scope and this competitive advantage, which of the, how are these organizational layers, how are you going to determine the activities that you have to perform and what are the organizational, or the organizational um, these, the structures that will go with that. I think a crucial thing on determining the activities, which I didn't have time to go into today, I jumped over that, is to think of the measurable outputs. So think of if I want to accomplish my success in the enterprise in the rental car market, what is the measure of output here? It's going to be satisfaction by the garages who are giving them the referrals, customer satisfaction because I want to be on the service on the service level. Okay, those are the things I have to measure. Given that I can measure those things and and business unit profits, with these three things, what kind of incentives can I design, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So from the strategy to the organization, you should go through the activities, think about what are the activities and what is measurable within those activities. Um, a separate issue that you raise, which I think is important, is, okay, um, how am I going to go inside and understand the rationality for an, for an arrangement that maybe kind of has lived its time and has worked uh, in, its, in its context? How do I know that that arrangement, I go to a company and I say, well, you should decentralize more, centralize more. I think like monetary policy, organizations are very delicate. And I would say, like an economist, I tend to think what is there is there for some reason. So I, I think our first job when we go into a company is to be very careful and see what is the rationality for what they have. Um, and I would say when there are things that are dysfunctional, that is when you, you can think, okay, so there are these practices, uh, what are, what are, alternative views on these practices and how are these practices kind of solving the problems we are facing. So I would say my answers have to do with two things. Really understand the environment and the strategy you're going to pursue in that environment and to be kind of as conservative as the circumstances permit. Of course, it's hard to get big assignments by promising the CEO that you'll be very conservative. You always have to come with, oh, it's all the learning curve and we'll just go to take our money from one market, put it in the other market, it will be much better. But um, um, that's, that's, that's my, my sense. Definitely, many local peaks, many organizational features fit together in ways that generate a good performance, and which ones you choose is going to depend on what you actually want to accomplish, I think. And, for example, in the law firm example, well, isn't it a great idea not to have incentives for lawyers? Well, if you have a great culture, it is. Can we afford, as the law firm number 25, to give up our incentives and hope that people are going to be pushing each other to work hard? Probably not. That's a, that's a position and a culture that are consistent on the very top end where you're getting people who are intrinsically motivated, who love the law, who have demonstrated through their lives that they work like crazy for no reason. It's probably not a position that you can take when you're law firm number 25 who is recruiting from a different pool. So again, people, organization, and culture fit with the 
position you want to undertake and things that look good in one context might not work out in another. I hope I gave at least a start of an answer, but your question would require much more than that, obviously. Close my University of Bath. Uh, thanks for a lecture, which basically was a strategy course, uh, which usually takes a whole semester, summarized in 45 minutes. You save yourself $6,000. <laughs> um, well, I'm supposed to teach it. All right. <laughs> Somebody did. Yeah, but, but anyway, it helped me a lot in terms of realizing what I need to cover. Um, however, uh, my question is, you started out with the issue of FBI not having incentives for people to actually share information. However, this is not an FBI-specific uh, issue. You attribute it to the fact that FBI has a very decentralized structure with people working on each on their individual projects. However, and I, if I understood you right, you were saying this decentralization of responsibility actually magnifies this lack of information sharing. However, other organizational structure still don't incentivize people to share information. Companies have tried to introduce modules, and as, as far as I'm, I mean, I'm not talking big organizations where you can't deal with culture issues. I mean, small organizations can, can try to create uh, a culture that encourages uh, sharing of information and, and cooperative. Attitudes. I think that's... However, how can a big organization deal with that? Siemens tried has a very high-profile system of information sharing, yeah. computer-based, et cetera. For I know they, they failed. I think, I think that's, that's a beautiful and a, and a, and a great question. Um, the problem that you're, that you're uh, expressing, I think, is one of the biggest problems that organizations confront. Our knowledge is the source of our competitive advantage in the firm, essentially, right? So by giving away your knowledge, as Arrow put it, right, every, an idea is valuable as long as I don't disclose it in some sense. The moment I tell the world, here's the idea, then the value is zero because I cannot sell it anymore to them. They already know it. From the perspective of a worker, indeed, a worker is saying, hey, I am the one who is the person to go to when we do this type of problem. I'm not going to go around telling it. My view on incentives was this. If you give the person half-hour incentives related to his own performance, it follows that he's really incentivized to not share that knowledge because that knowledge is his uniqueness, that knowledge is his performance. He wants to do well, he doesn't share it. If you make it, um, if you make it, let me just make a couple of notes. If you make it so that his performance is related to the team among which people he's, he's sharing, um, you're going to do things better. So that was the point I was trying to make. Now, let me answer specifically the question, which is, A, indeed, as you have said, companies fail at this. What they have found in the last 10 years is that knowledge systems that are based on hardware, IT-intensive knowledge systems, don't give you the solution to this problem. Okay? People don't put their information, their true knowledge, in a database. That takes time. It's hard to measure. Who's going to know I put it there? Once I put it there, everybody has it. Those systems haven't worked. How do we get people to, to share? One thing that does work is A, so I would say three things. Directories, I want to talk about three things. Directories, citations, and uh, low-powered incentives. Directories, the way people actually share knowledge is on the phone. What you need to do is to tell people who knows what, 
make sure that people are able to follow the knowledge all the way to the person who actually has the solution. In order to do that, you only need people to be willing to disclose what they know about. So this is the expert on SAP implementation. He's done it two times. He can do it. Okay, that's enough. He doesn't need to tell us, look, the key problem when you do SAP implementation is that once you go live, everything becomes, the time becomes compressed, etc. Okay. So first, directories preferred to actual knowledge bases. I think that's, that's something that, that people have already figured out. Second, citations. I think in, in, in our business, academia, my business and some of you, some people are, are not, and this business will never be, um, the way you measure output is not by counting how many contributions you make. Okay, that's exactly measuring the opposite of, that's measuring noise. Okay, me, doing, if you measure how many pages I'll do, I'll do lots of pages. Don't worry, okay? I can produce a page in the next 10 minutes. Okay, does anybody want to read it? I assure you, you won't. Okay? So, CIA, in this work on intelligence reform that I did with, with Richard Posner, we were flabbergasted to read the CIA analysts get rewarded on number of reports they produce. This is true in companies as well. Like, how many reports you put? Oh, you're writing a lot? That's good. Okay? We know, in our business at least, we know something about the solution to that. Count who is using the report. Was this report cited in another report? Was this report cited in a decision that was made? Okay? CIA, make sure that people who actually, the one guy who spent 10 years writing the one report that said the Shiites, blah, 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 etc., that guy has lost his job because they count reports. The guy who spent three years developing the cousin of Saddam Hussein as an informant, he's fired. Okay? The guy who developed 10 informants, the waiter in some cafe in Baghdad, that guy is rewarded because that's lots of informants. Okay? No. Make sure the key piece of information is coded, people know who generated, and when it goes around, it gets spread, people know. So citations as opposed to number of contributions. I think some companies are doing this pretty well. I think McKinsey is going some way towards doing this all right. I think BP is actually doing it pretty well. They have these um, peer assists. It's tricky to count peer assists because... I can assist you, you can assist me, and we can count both as a peer system. We've been wasting time having a beer, okay? But roughly, they try to measure who is actually being helpful to other people, and you can reward on that. Third, and very related to what I had said during the talk, don't rely so much on quantitative incentives for the staff that is hard to measure. I mean, firms go all the time towards measuring ever more closely the contribution of the individual managers, and that's good, to the extent that you use quantitative elements only and to the extent that you put a lot of weight on that, you're telling managers, when the phone rings, hang up. Okay? Firms have to rely more on culture and how do you generate a good culture? You generate it by encouraging uh, an atmosphere where people know that they will be rewarded for their contribution as opposed as to their, by, their, by, their, by the actual kind of numerical output. So those are some things that I think some companies are successfully doing. I agree with you that the problem is very hard. Um, you can use language. You can try to facilitate horizontal communication as opposed to communication with hierarchies. I mean, I could give you um, a few more thoughts on this, and I am sure you could give, you clearly have thought about it, you could give a few more thoughts as well, but that's, that's I think, where I leave it. Yes. Yeah, you have somebody with a mic. Don't worry. I think uh, th this may be the last question, depending on how long the discussion is, because it's getting a little bit uh, late. Hello. Uh, I have a question regarding the uh, market for uh, higher education. You mentioned several examples from uh, car rentals, law firms, 
And uh, you even mentioned briefly uh, the system of, of citation. Um, do you have any views on competition of, uh, among universities and uh, specifically uh, in, in our area? Thank you. Citations. <laughs> I think that, I think that um, the UK is doing most of what needs to be doing right. You need to decentralize, give power to universities. You need to give, make the money for the students and the research. The UK is doing that. And you make, you need to allow universities autonomy in selecting faculty, fixing the salaries of faculties, and selecting students. Those three trivial things, there's no other country in Europe which is doing them. Amazingly enough, in Italy or Spain or France, all faculty get paid the same. Universities um, don't get to set the pay of faculty. The universities don't get rewarded on having uh, uh, better quality students or better quality faculty, and they don't have any autonomy to compete, etc. So I think the UK is getting these... I mean, I know when you're inside the system, it's hard to figure out that you're doing all right, but it seems to me the UK is doing uh, reasonably well. I think many people think it's private universities, the answer, Stanford, MIT, and I think... We have to think that in the U.S., a lot of the really top universities are University of Michigan, University of Wisconsin, University of California, Berkeley, UCLA, UCSF is one of the best hospitals in the country, that you can do it with public money, but you need competition and you need, um, and you need to make sure that research gets rewarded, quality of research as opposed to quantity. I think the U.K. is going quite far along that road, actually. Okay, thanks very much, Luis. Thank you.